You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill. So glad all of you are able to join us this morning. Those of you who are joining us online, thank you for taking time for inviting us into your home. We want to take time to invite you here. So come join us some Sunday morning. We'd love to have you at 9.15 or 11 a.m., either here in the Cross Point Center. And I just want to say that for those of you who might be first-time guests, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here. Great to have you. We're happy that you're able to join us today as well. Um, I want to remind you, you saw, heard an announcement about our members meeting. Our members meetings are very important. We have them once a quarter. And a members meeting is an opportunity to come in here and reports about what God is doing in the life of our church. We celebrate new members, but we also take care of business issues. And the members meeting tonight, we're voting on our budget for next year, for 2023. So if you want to be a part of that and vote on that, then we want to come. want you to be a part of that. Vote on that. Wherever we fall short, we call on you to make the difference up. So now, now none of you wants to come to a meeting now, right? Right? But no, we want you to be here because it's a great time of fellowship afterwards. We can eat together. If you did not sign up to eat, come anyway to the members meeting at five o'clock in this room. If we have extra food, we'd love to, for you to be able to join with us. We want you to be a part of that. Also, we do a number of bridge events in the life of our church. You heard about the movie night that's coming up, uh, the stars, an animated film for families. We, last year, we thought, what would it be like if we filled this grass section up out here with people that would come in lawn chairs? and blankets and get popcorn and hot chocolate and a donut bus, which is not free, by the way. You got to buy that on your own. But we want, we thought, what would it be like? And so we're just inviting our community. We're inviting you. We're, we're just going to have a couple of places. If you want to sit in your car, you can sit in your car and we'll have an FM uh, situation set up so you can hear the movie through your radio. Or you can go sit on the grass and sit in your chair and get outside. It's a huge screen that we're going to have. So I want to invite you to come and be a part of that. We're going to try this this year and see about our families and our friends coming to be a part of that. We'd love to have you to be part of that. Well, you know, we're living in a time these days where it's very apparent that we're going through a recession. A lot of people argue about whether we're in a recession or not, but we know we're in a recession because we're beginning to see things slow down. And you also know the pinch of inflation. You know how much everything costs now. My wife and I went to get cheese sandwiches the other day, just grilled cheese sandwiches, Costs us $42 for two grilled cheese sandwiches. I said, we can stay home. I can do that for myself and pay myself. But, uh, but you know the cost of it. But if you're wealthy and if you got a lot of money, you recognize that a recession and an inflation really doesn't seem to bother you too much. And so as I was thinking about that this week, I thought, who are the wealthiest people in America? And so I Googled and I wanted to find the top five wealthiest people in the United States. Now, many of these you will know, and you probably already got them in your mind ticking off what you think are the wealthiest people. So since I did that research and I'm on the platform speaking to you, I want to show you who those top five people are. So number one is Jeff Bezos. He is worth $201 billion, $201 billion. You can't even comprehend how much that is. Number two is Elon Musk. He is worth $190.5 billion. And, um, and it seems like it's gonna be continuing to grow for him. Number three is Mark Zuckerberg. He's worth $134.5 billion. And right behind him is Bill Gates, 
who is worth $134 billion. And number five might be somebody most of you don't know. His name is Larry Page. He is the co-founder of Google, and he's worth only $123 billion. Poor guy. And so you look at these people and you say, wow, these people are really rich. I mean, we can't even imagine the kind of world that they live in with billions of dollars. Do you know that there are more billionaires in America than there's ever been? And this time we're seeing that continuing to grow. Now, here's what's interesting. When it comes to trying to define who's rich, nobody can really define who's rich because the definition for rich is a moving target, Matter of fact, Gallup poll did a research a couple of years ago, and they wanted to find out through different socioeconomic settings in America what rich really is. And some people say, and a matter of fact, this is what they discovered. With almost without exception, every person who defined rich was twice as much as what they currently made. So if you're making thirty thousand a year, sixty thousand is rich. If you're making 60,000 a year, 120,000 is rich. If you're making two and a half million a year, five million is rich. And no one could really fully identify with it. Now, the thing is this. Um, while we can't quite identify what rich is, and it seems to always be a moving target, the average yearly income in America is $165,000. So if the average is 165,000 across the board, if you're making 37,000, you would probably say, well, I'm not doing very well. I'm not even making the average. But if you're making $37,000 in America, you're in the top 4% of wage earners in the world. If you make $137,000, you're in the top 4% of the bracket of rich people globally. And so you are rich by the world's standards. For example, if your cell phone is not good in good service, that's a rich people problem. If your cable goes out, that's a rich people problem. If if your internet or your computer crashes, that's a rich people problem. If you go to your closet and you can't decide which outfit to wear, that's a rich people problem. If you get a notice from your county that says, please stop watering your lawn because there is a drought, most of the world can't even comprehend having enough water to throw on the ground. That's a rich people problem. Now, most of us would never say that we're rich. Most of us would never be able to say, yeah, I'm part of the wealthy of society. But we never see ourselves as that. Charles Barkley tells a story that was amazing. Um, Back when George Bush was running for president, he voted for George W. Bush. His mother got upset with him and said to him, Charles, don't you know that Bush is the rich people's president? He said, mom, we are the rich people. And so we never see ourselves fully being rich. Today, as we continue our study, and as we look at our study in 1 Timothy for the church, the epistle that Paul is writing to Timothy, telling the church how it is to conduct itself, we come to chapter 6. 
And in chapter 6, verses 6 through 10 and 17 through 19, the Apostle Paul is speaking to two groups of people about wealth and prosperity. And he's giving different directions to each of those different groups of people. So here's what we're going to do. If you have your Bibles, open to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, 17 through 19. We're going to be looking at, or if you have your devices, or, or if you have your phones, whatever it is that you have, open to those pages. Because as we look at what God's word has to say to the body of Christ about dealing with wealth and all of these issues, he really goes to the heart of the issue and what he wants to speak about. Now, before we jump into the passage, let me just remind you of this. Having money is not wrong. Being wealthy is not a sin. In fact, when you go through the pages of Scripture, you will find that God blessed people incredibly abundantly far beyond anything they can ever ask or hope or think. You see that Abraham was incredibly wealthy. You see Jacob was wealthy. We see that David and Solomon were very wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament and Nicodemus were very wealthy. And so the problem is not the issue of money. You see, let me put it this way. We don't have a money problem. We have a contentment problem. And that's really the heart of the issue. And when the apostle Paul writes to Timothy, he's going to break this section down into three areas. I'm just going to give them to you right now. The first thing he's going to write about is the concept of contentment. And then he's going to talk about the charge for contentment. And the last thing we'll look at is the cornerstone for our contentment. So let's look at them in these ways, okay? Here's the first thing. Paul speaks to Timothy about the concept of contentment. He tells us what contentment really is. And in verses six through nine, he gives those to us, or six through eight, he gives those to us. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. The Apostle Paul begins by talking about this issue of contentment. Now when we deal with the issue of contentment, we have to come to understand what is he talking about? What is contentment? How does it impact our lives and how does it really change my life? So the Apostle Paul begins really quickly telling us what it is by virtue of the Greek language that he uses and what he says. Here's the first thing we need to know, that he gives us the meaning of contentment. What is contentment? Let me give you a real simple definition. Contentment is to be satisfied with one has or to be satisfied in what one does not have. Did you hear that? It is to be satisfied with the things that you have and to be satisfied with the things you don't have. And contentment is this internal disposition of satisfaction regardless of the circumstances of your life. It is something that's internal. It's not based upon external circumstances. It's something that's within. Now the Greeks thought that this word contentment meant self-sufficiency. But it goes beyond that because Paul later writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he says this, and God is able to make 
all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance in every good deed. Now notice how he puts it. He's able to make all grace, always, all sufficiency, everything, an abundance for every good thing. So here's, here's a simple definition. It is an internal satisfaction that comes from the sufficiency of God in my life that no matter what happens to me, I'm content. Whether I have much or whether I have little, it is something that begins internally within us. So this contentment is this satisfaction in my sufficiency in Jesus Christ. And because of what he has done and is doing, I can be content in all things. So that's the meaning for contentment. Now, what's the reason for contentment? Here's the second part, the reason for contentment. The reason for contentment is this. He says that our entrance into the world and our exit from the world are one and the same. We come into the world the same way we leave the world. You bring nothing with you when you come. You bring nothing with you when you leave. In fact, Job famously puts it this way. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked um, I shall return there. So I, I love that picture. Because if you want to talk about true equity in humanity, we're all born and come in the world the same way, and we all leave the world the same way. When you come into the world, you come in naked. There is nothing else with you. Both of my children, I was present for their births, Ryan and Leslie. And uh, as I was there, you know what I noticed? When Ryan was born, he was not born with the latest pair of Nike tennis shoes on his feet. He didn't. Leslie didn't come out with a little gift bag from Bed Bath & Beyond. They came out prunish, red, dirty, needing to be washed naked. And every single one of us comes into this world that way. And the other thing is we all leave the world that way. I've done countless, countless funerals in my life. I don't even know how many I've done. I've never been to a funeral where the hearse was going to the graveyard with a U-Haul trailer behind it. Because you take nothing out of the world. And although we can dress people up, you know that the interesting thing about funeral suits? They have no pockets. There's no need for a pocket. Because when we come in, we leave the same way with nothing except for the things that we send ahead. And so we might talk about, oh, if I had this, if I had that, everything you have now is going to be left to someone else. Every bank account, every car, every house. And some of you are thinking, thank goodness, my bills. But everything is going to be left to someone else. And the reason we need to learn contentment is just simply because we will not take anything of value from this place with us. So here's the third thing we need to see, the secret of contentment. What is the secret of contentment? This, this is the key right here. The apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter four, verses 11 through 13. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, 
For I have learned in whatever circumstance I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We love to quote this last verse and we apply it so many times to all kinds of situations in our life and it certainly can be applied, but the context is in contentment. It's the issue of contentment. He's saying this, that there are a couple of things that, that we need to learn about contentment. And if, if you don't remember anything today, I want you to remember this. Two important things about contentment. Number one, contentment is something I must learn. Two times in that passage, he says, I learned contentment. It is a discipline that we need to put in our life. We need to teach ourselves. We need to discipline ourselves. We need to walk every single day and recognizing that in Christ, we have the sufficiency of everything we need and I need to practice how to be content today. So it is a discipline that you and I learn. Here's the second thing. Contentment begins where I am, not where I want to be. Boy, this is where we miss it. Contentment begins where I am, not where I want to be. If your phrase is this, <clears throat> I will be content when, then you will never be content. I will be content when I get that new job. I will be content when I'm in that good relationship. I will be content when I can get that new car. I will be content when I can reach a certain status level in culture. If you're not content where you are now, you will never be content. And so contentment is something that I practice every day and I begin because the apostle Paul says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances, whether things are good, whether they're bad, whether I have plenty, where I have little, where circumstances are joyful or whether they're painful. It's in the midst of every one of these situations. I learn, practice, discipline, confess, and look at the contentment of where I am right now and not where I want to be. So the concept of contentment is an issue in our culture that is a struggle. Because we live in such a prosperous world and we're always driven by wanting the next and the best thing. Now let me just say this. There doesn't mean that Christians cannot have nice homes. It doesn't mean that believers can't have nice cars or nice um, technology. There's a difference between wanting something and needing something. And many times as believers, we need things. For instance, you may need a new car. And because there's a need, you get you a car. Or you may need a new home because your family is growing and you don't have enough space. Or maybe you need a new job because that job is not sufficient in taking care of your financial needs. There's nothing wrong with those things. But it's when I have to have the, the best new gadget, the latest iPhone, the new device, that new electric car, or if I can just live in that new neighborhood, then what we're demonstrating with our purchases is a lack of contentment in our own lives. And so we walk with this attitude of my sufficiency is in the blessings of God and I will be content with what I have and even what I don't have. That's contentment. 
So he gives us this concept of contentment. The second thing he does in his passage, he gives the charge for contentment. And in this passage, he speaks to two groups of people. He speaks to one group of people in verses 9 through 10, and he speaks to another group of people in verses 17 through 19. Here's the first group of people he speaks to. He gives a charge to the Christians who want to get rich. Now, he's speaking to believers, and he's speaking to a group of Christians who want to be rich. Here's what he says to them. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now he's speaking to a group of believers who want to be rich. Now in the culture that he's speaking to, they were either rich or poor. They don't really have a middle class people in that culture, but we overwhelmingly are middle class. So who's he speaking to? He's speaking to all believers. But he's speaking specifically to believers who have this desire, this craving, oh, if I can just get rich, or if I can just make more money. And he gives a warning here. Two times in this passage, he warns of the passion and a craving for wanting more money. And then the other thing he does, and we need to understand this, he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Now, people misquote this all the time. I saw a video this week of people misquoting this. They say it this way, money is the root of all evil. That's not what scripture says. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And so there's nothing evil in and of itself with money. Money is amoral. It's not evil, nor is it righteous. The internet is amoral. It's not necessarily good or bad. It's how you use it that brings about righteousness or brings about evil. So money in and of itself is not anything that's evil. It's the love of money that is a root, not the only root of all kinds of evils. And then he gives Timothy these three steps that will lead people who are pursuing money for a happiness and fulfillment, the path to destruction. Let me give them to you. The first he speaks of the Lord. There's a lure. There's a lure towards it. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. I just want to tell you all the things of the world that, 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 that the enemy wants to use to pull us away from Christ is nothing but a lure. It's like fishing. You use a lure to attract the fish. Do you know that advertisement is created for one person? One purpose? All advertisement, all marketing is created for one purpose, to make you discontent. Let me show you something you don't have. Let me show you something you need. Let me show you something that all your friends are buying. Let me show you something that if you don't have this, your life is not complete. Advertisement is made for that. 
And so constant barrage of advertisement is a lure that is telling us, oh, if we could just get this next biggest thing, we're going to be so happy. You know who the master marketing expert is in the Bible? Satan. He was in the garden. And when God created Adam and Eve in his image, he put them into paradise. And there they were enjoying paradise. Satan comes along. He says, oh, yeah, this is nice. But dude, you know what? There's one thing you don't have, guys. You don't have the knowledge of good and evil. But if you take this little product and you would just take a bite of this, then you would be like God and you would have everything. And it was a lie. And the lure of that attraction of having what they don't currently have led them to the next step, and that is lust. A lust for sense, many senseless and harmful desires. Because it begins to lust, it begins this craving, this desire, I've got to have it, I've got to have it. And the senselessness of it means there's no discretion. We just lose our mind. We just seem to say, you know what, I just need that. And we become consumed with those things. And then there are harmful desires in the fact that they didn't even realize that what they're about to do was going to plunge them into disobedience to a rightful, loving king. And what did they do? They followed the passion of their hearts and it led to the third, the loss that plunged people into ruin and destruction. And what happened? They sinned and plunged all of mankind into sin from that point on. And from that point on, you and I have the natural tendency to be lured for more, to lust within our own fallen nature, and to give in to the issue of loss that is there. This word that Paul uses, plunge, is a picture of a ship sinking and individuals drowning. And then the result is this, is that they drift away from spiritual things and their faith becomes shipwrecked. They drift away from the things that they know to be true, giving in to this trap and this lure and the lust. And I would add another one, a lie always brings to loss. I pastored this church for going on 29 years now. In May, it'll be 29 years. And during that time, I've had many celebrations with people whose lives have been transformed. But I've run into people who've stepped into this very pattern I'm thinking of a young man and his family. His mom and dad grew up in a town where they had an inner city ministry, where they were ministering to the poor of that culture. And he grew up in a poor home, hardly ever having anything. He and his wife got involved in the life of our church, and they were very, very involved in a number of ministry opportunities. And he often took what he learned from his parents as missionaries and applied it to his own life. Well, he began to have a little family and he, he got a job and then he started giving his focus towards making more money. Then he got a promotion. Then he started making more money. Then he moved up in the upper echelons of this, this business and, the, and this company. And as he began to grow, he began to travel and he was away from home more often. He and his wife started drifting apart. They ended up getting divorced and today their lives are a mess. It's just a testimony that when we follow these patterns because we're running after getting the next, the biggest, the greatest thing, 
It's a lie because what it ends up in is emptiness and brokenness and possible shipwreck. That couple's no longer in church. They're separated. Their children are growing up in an environment that's contrary to everything they have ever known through their whole life because of the truth of discontentment in our hearts. So he's talking to believers. And let me say, some of you, some of you are thinking, if you could just get that right job, if you can make this amount of money, if you could do this thing, if you can have the time for leisure travel, if you can do all of these things, and when there's nothing wrong in and of those things of themselves, but if you step into that each path, then what's ahead is a reality of pain and suffering. Do you know what's interesting? Do you know the people who win the lottery? win millions of dollars that almost without exception, every winner of the lottery not only ends up bankrupt, but into addictions and the destruction of their families because they fight over the money. That's where discontentment ultimately leads. So he warns the believers, don't pursue that. But then he writes to a second group in the church, and here they are. There's a charge to Christians who are rich. He not only speaks to Christians who want to be rich, but now he speaks to the Christians in the church who are rich. Now, by the standard that I gave you earlier, we're all wealthy compared to the world. But we may not all be wealthy compared to each other. And I just want to say something. Paul never tells believers who are wealthy to divest themselves of their money. He never says that. He never says, now listen, if you want to be really spiritual, go and sell all that you have and live like everybody else. He never says that. And Jesus only said it one time because the young man's heart was connected to his possessions. And so this is not a call for believers to go divest themselves of everything, but he gives them a positive warning and a negative warning. So let's begin with the negative warning that he gives to them. And this is what he says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. He gives a negative, and here's a negative. He speaks of the danger, the danger of wealth. What is the danger of wealth? While you may be blessed by God in his providence and his sovereign grace has allowed you to make sufficient funds and money, there can be a danger. And he tells us that there are two dangers in this. Number one, there can be a focus on self. Charge them not to be haughty. Don't be prideful. Don't become elites. Don't think that you're better than everybody else. Don't think that because you've had success in your business and that you've been able to make wise financial decisions that you're above everybody else. He says, don't do that. Why? Because your success clearly comes from God's providence in your life. And he's the one who's given you the ability to make wealth. And don't be so set on yourself and look down on other people because it's only been by God's grace that you are where you are. There's a danger. Don't build yourself up. I've read several years ago of a young man who was discipled by his pastor early in his life. 
He ended up moving off and he started his own business. He began growing in this business and he became very, very wealthy. He was miserable. He went back to his pastor and he said, pastor, here's my path. Here's what's happened. I'm so miserable. And he says, all I do is I think about what I can get for myself and my family. And the pastor, very wise, took him to his office. He says, I want you to look out this window here. Look out there. What do you see? He looked and he said, I see people. I see little boys playing in the playground. I see parents walking their children. I see people with their dogs. I see people everywhere. He said, okay. He took him to a mirror. He says, what do you see? He said, I see myself. And the pastor said, you know, the only difference between this window and that mirror is the mirror's backside is lined with silver paint. And when you give yourself to the silver things of the world, you no longer see the people in your life. You only look at yourself and your own focus. Have you noticed that? That whenever you're so concerned with your own income, your own finances, your own money, that you only see yourself and you no longer see the people in your life of people who have needs. So there can be a focus on self and there's a danger that is there. But there's a second danger, false security. He says not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. There's a false security when you begin to build your safety and security and significance on money. Because it won't last. It won't last. I, I tell you, um, my wife and I have always put money aside in investments for retirement ever since we were married. And we've done that our entire married life. And we still do it today. But I never paid attention to stocks until I turned 60. And so all of a sudden, I start paying attention to stocks. So I'm looking at the stock market. And I'm thinking, yeah, baby, come on. It's looking good. Come on. Well, then in his last year, It's been devastating. I mean, I look at it, I'm thinking, oh my goodness. So I just quit looking at it. I said, I can't look at it anymore. I'm so discouraged. And the other day, I opened it up and I said, oh my goodness, we've lost that much money? And I'm just like freaking out. And my wife says, Phil, it's not real money. It's not real money because you're not retired yet and it may come back. And even if it doesn't come back, Jesus is our sufficiency and he'll take care of everything. I knew I married Mrs. Wright. I just didn't know her first name was always. But she is. And that's the reality. If you're looking at your stocks, you realize what has happened. And we know that we could lose every bit of it and some foolish decisions that our politicians are more likely than not going to make. So it's not in that. And so we need to understand that the danger is when I get so consumed with my own finances, it comes about me and I think I'm responsible and the world's responsible for my security. And it isn't. So he gives a danger. But here's the second thing. He says they are to do good 
to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, the storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He moves from the negative to the positive. He moves from a danger, and now he tells them, this is your duty, the duty that comes with wealth. And if God has blessed you, and you have finances that God's providence has allowed in your life, he says there are three things about your duty. Number one, good works. You're to do, do good. You're to be rich in good works. Those with whom God has blessed as Christians with money, he's blessed you for that for the purpose of encouraging other people, for empowering other people's lives, that you may invest in the kingdom's work through your good works. But then he adds to that. He says to generosity, to be generous and ready to share. That through God's provision in your life is not just simply for you, it's for other people. It's for the body of Christ. It's for the community. It's for investing your life in other people. And then he closes with this, for good foundation. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. It's not a works-oriented salvation. It's not that you do these things to earn salvation, but because of your salvation that's in Christ and God has blessed you, you do these things out of obedience and a love for people and building up the kingdom of God. We sat down with our broker a couple of years ago and we said, this is our goal as we're looking at retirement one day. They said, okay, how much money do you want to make? I said, the issue for us is not how much money we want to make. Here's the issue. I said, the issue for us is when we're retired, how much money will we have to give away? And the guy just looked at us. He said, what? I said, we want to know how much money we can give away. How much ministry we can do. How good can we do on a mission field? We want to be free to bless people with the money that God has blessed us with. He said, I have never in all of my experience heard anybody to say that. That's the goal, is that as God blesses us, we bless others. It's not an issue of just porting it up for myself and for my kids. Now, will we take care of our kids? Yeah, but it's gonna be for the glory of God to advance the cause of the kingdom for his good. So there's the concept, there's the charge. Here's the last part, the cornerstone. What is the cornerstone for our contentment? Here's what he says. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What is truly life? It's not what you have. It's who you have. What is truly life? It's not the things that you amass. It's the things that you send on because of your obedience to Christ. What is truly life? It is walking to the absolute contentment and peace that your God will bless you according to his riches and glory. Not out of his riches and glory, according to his riches and glory. In proportion to his riches in glory. 
And that as I'm walking obediently and I'm absolutely content in the provisions that God has made for me, and I can surrender these fully and be content in any and every circumstance, then I know that he will take care of me. In fact, Jesus is the cornerstone of our life. And when we think about all the things that Jesus said of his own sufficiency for you and me as believers, why would we go anywhere else for our security? Jesus is the cornerstone. And here are the things that Jesus said as the source of our contentment. His seven I am's, I am the bread of life. He's saying that I'm the sustenance for you. If you follow me, I will sustain you. I'm the one that satisfies your hungers and your desires and your passions. I am your bread. I am the light of the world. I'm your illumination. I'm the one that gives you the revelation. I'm the one that gives you the peace that you need. I'm not only going to sustain you physically, but I am going to guide you spiritually in every aspect of your life. I am the door. I am your entrance to the Father. I am your entrance into a restored relationship. I am the one that can bring you to a place of absolute peace and comfort. I am the good shepherd. I am the one who will guide you in a world filled with all kinds of traps and temptations and snares. I'm going to bring you to the place of quiet waters. I'm going to bring you the good food that you need. I'm going to protect you from the enemy. I'm your good shepherd. Then he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. I am your future hope. I am the one who is raised from the dead. I am the one that is alive. I am the one that has the keys of heaven and hell. I am the one that has your name written in the Lamb's book of life. And you will forever be with me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the source of truth. I am the absolute truth that you need. And I'm the one to give you the lifestyle that will honor God, and I am the true vine. I am the one to whom you're connected, and without me, you can do nothing. This is who I am. And I love what Jesus says in John's gospel. He says this, before Abraham was, I am. The Jews wanted to kill him immediately. Because he, in that statement, connected himself with God, Yahweh. I am. And that word, I am, is the present active tense of the verb to be, which means this. I am who I have always been. And I will be who I have always been. I'm not a God of the past. I'm God of the present, here and now. And here's the thing, believers... We're living in a world that constantly wants us to be dissatisfied with what we have. But if we're a child of God, there should be nothing in this world to tempt us, to pull us away because of who we know and our absolute security in Jesus Christ. He is enough. He's all we need. I love the story of the old farmer 
who was working on his farm and hardly anything was growing and they lived in an old shack, he and his wife. And at the end of this day, he was exhausted, he was dirty. He walks into his house, he sits down at the table. His wife brings him a meal of two slices of toast, a piece of ham and a glass of water. He looks at her and he says, what, all of this and Christ too? How can life get any better? In our culture, we would say, you're a fool. In his mind, he would say, when a man has everything he needs and is satisfied, he is the richest person in the world. And it's in Christ that he is enough. He's enough. So let me ask you, how's your contentment these days? How's your contentment meter? This Thursday is Thanksgiving. Friday is Black Friday. (laughs) It's a time for us to listen to all the advertisers. Now, am I saying you should never buy presents or things? No, I'm not saying that at all. As God gives you freedom to do that, the issue is not what you own. The issue is what owns you. What owns you? And are you content? Would you be willing to say today, I'm content with what I have. I don't need anything because I've got Christ. And he's given me the blessings that I have around me. I'm content in these things. You know what will happen? You will find yourself not thinking about what you need, but what other people need. And one of the things that we get upset with is when our kids seem to be so ungrateful and they're always asking for the latest, greatest thing and our grandkids seem to want more, 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 more. And the thing that I have to say is, who taught them that? Who taught them that? Perhaps we did. And perhaps it's time to take a step back and say, let's thank God for what we have. And all of this in Christ too. That puts it in perspective, doesn't it? For the church. Now, if you're not a believer today, I want you to hear something. All of these things Jesus has done for you. And today, today you can say, I need to surrender to Christ. I need to give my life to him because everything I've been looking for has been empty in my life. Nothing has satisfied me and I'm so unhappy. And you will always be that. But when Jesus Christ, you will find the fulfillment and the answers for your soul. And in him alone is the one who can satisfy every passion and desire of your heart. It's him. So I would say to believers today, learn contentment. Be content where you are, not where you want to be. And listen to the warnings of God's word because the sufficiency of Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is enough. 
We thank you, Father, that even in Christ, you have given us an abundance of things. And we're blessed to live in a nation where, Father, we have so many wonderful possessions and things at our disposal. But, Father, we can also live in a world that desensitizes us of what's really, truly wealth. And Father, may we, as we go into this Thanksgiving season, be given thanks to you. May, as we go into this Thanksgiving season, into Christmas, we model contentment. And Father, maybe there are people in our lives that we need to give things to, or we need to do things for. May we walk in that. And may we be content that Christ is enough. And Father, for those who need Jesus, I pray today that they would come and surrender their hearts to Jesus, who is the only answer for their life. That even today they would consider the claims of Christ and yield to him and his grace. Thank you, Father, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.